Thank you, Ben. I know that those of you who are used to seeing Ben up here um, are glad to see him up here. Uh, but I, I, what I, I'm not sure whether or not you know is that you know, during this, especially as we've been ramping back up, uh, Ben has been taking care of doing all the all the uh, video uh, uh, streaming and stuff, and um, is helping us come up with a whole new, whole new thing. So, wanted you to know that, um, and uh, wanted to thank thank Ben for all the work that he's put in, and it's been considerable. So, thank you. Now, I would like to invite those who are able uh, to stand and uh, to turn to one another where you are and to offer one another a sign of the peace of Christ. And now, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves, rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the, in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived there ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. And the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, are we going to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five <laughs> and two fish. And then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces 
and of fish. And those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. If you've been following along Mark's telling of Jesus' story, you'll realize that Jesus always seems to be on the move. First he was here, then he got up, then he went there, and after a while he got tired of the crowds, and so he loaded up the mystery machine and headed out for some different place. Mark appears almost breathless, just trying to keep up. And the same thing happens in our text this morning. Jesus has sent the disciples out, telling them to take nothing for their journey. And whenever they enter a town that doesn't welcome them, they're supposed to shake the dust off their Birkenstocks when they leave. Do you remember that? Well, our story today picks up with the return of the disciples from their first mission. And Jesus tells them, because everybody seems to be milling about. Let's go find someplace comfortable where y'all can kick back, put your feet up for a while. And so they get in the boat and they take off to find a deserted place where they can get a little peace and quiet. But the weird thing is, there's this other story wedged in between when Jesus sends the disciples and when they return in our text for this morning. And this story, the one in the middle of those two, it's a doozy. In between is the story of Herod Antipas's birthday party and the beheading of John the Baptist, which occurs just prior to our text for this morning. Remember that story? Let me refresh your memory for a moment. So Herod throws this dinner party in honor of himself. I mean, it's his birthday after all. And he's got everybody there. I mean, they brought out Mother's China, dusted off the really good wine, and had some Afro-Cuban band that was tearing it up on stage. I mean, it was, it was, it was an epic party. But then Herod's daughter comes out on the dance floor, and if all the gossip columnists got it right, she does a number that starts melting people's faces off. And Herod is so completely overwrought at the spectacle, and he wants to sort of show off in front of the crowd at his party that he promises his daughter anything she wants. What she asks for, however, is not a new, not a new car, it's not, a, not jewelry, not a trip. What she wants is the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, Herod doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, since, as Mark reminds us, Herod is kind of afraid of John. But, I mean, he's already shot off his mouth in front of the crowd at his party, and he's more afraid of looking like an idiot in front of them. So the head of John the Baptist is what his dancing daughter gets. Now, 
in a murder mystery, you're sort of following the story closely when the author drops a hint that you're supposed to pick up on, right? I mean, it's usually a connection between two things. So you read what appears to be kind of a throwaway detail. The murderer wore a red scarf at the murder scene. And later in the book, everybody shows up to the dinner party at the mansion, and one of the lead characters, the one that nobody suspects, is said to be wearing a red scarf. And you know. The author drops a hint, you make the connection, and you know. Now, our passage on the feeding of the 5,000 this morning opens with the line, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Do you see any problems here? I mean, there's not even any mention of the unfortunate misplacement of John's head. I mean, the, 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 the story sort of gets dropped in the middle of Jesus and his peripatetic pal's travelogue. I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? But what, what, what are we supposed to make of this odd interlude? I'll get to that in just a sec. Go back to our story for today. Jesus and the disciples are heading out for a little R&R. The problem is the crowd saw him leave and followed along, and they were waiting for Jesus when he paddled up to the shore. So, you know, so much for a little alone time, right? Jesus, Mark tells us, has compassion on the crowd, and he teaches them many things. Now, Jesus' disciples, they see all of this, and as evening draws nigh, they approach Jesus with some anxiety, and they say, <clears throat> hey, boss, I mean, it's getting kind of late, and um, I mean, there really isn't even a Circle K on this exit. Just, can we just tell the crowd to disperse, you know, maybe go back a couple exits and you know, find a hamburger or something? But, I mean, why do you think the disciples are so panicked by this? Well, of course, they, like Herod, know that when crowds don't get what they want, things can get pretty awkward quickly. So by wedging the story of the state-sponsored execution of John the Baptist between the sending of the disciples on their mission and on their return, Mark sort of cleverly draws together these two seemingly unrelated stories by dropping hints about crowds. So in the prior story, Herod is afraid of the crowd, and he winds up giving in to the impulse to kill that meddling John the Baptist because he's afraid of what he's going to look like in front of his friends, in front of the people, the crowds. He thinks he's going to look weak for not keeping his promise. So Herod's actions are in part motivated of, by fear of looking weak to the crowd. Now, Jesus' disciples, I mean, they understand Herod's fear of crowds. They've seen the body cam footage of what happened on January 6th. I mean, they know that when large crowds of people get riled up, things can go bad really quickly. 
But what does Jesus say when the disciples politely try to remind him that they've got a potential food service crisis on their hands? He says, I don't send them away. You give them something to eat. Now, how do you explain the difference between the response to the crowd by both Herod and Jesus' disciples and the way that Jesus responds to the crowd? Now, I think it has to do with transactional utility. Now, stay with me a minute. Don't roll your eyes at me. So transactional utility is, is something that we're all used to. I mean, you think about it all the time. But you didn't know that about yourself, did you? Well, transactional utility is the principle merely of fair exchange. I mean, economies are driven by it, right? I give you $25,000 for a new car, and I expect that it won't blow up as soon as I drive it off the lot, right? Because that wouldn't be fair. Human relationships are often structured by this kind of calculation, right? If you're, if you're married and your spouse spends every waking hour doing things that don't include you, sooner or later you'll draw your partner's attention to this inequity in the system. Quid pro quo. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I mean, that's how so much of our lives work, right? A little for you, a little for me. So the balance stays even. Now, Herod and the disciples, they know this. And they know that there's a certain metric that applies to transactional utility when it comes to crowds. I mean, if 20,000 people go to the trouble of paying and coming to see the Rolling Stones, and instead you throw Justin Bieber at them, I mean, you're going to tip the balance seriously out of your favor, risking a severe collective uh, confrontation. So Herod knows that the crowd is watching to see if he's going to keep his promise to his daughter. I mean, they're watching to see if he's weak, Herod makes the calculation based on what the crowd he cares most about pleasing wants. And the disciples, they, they, they think they know what the crowd wants too, right? Food. But they also know that they don't have the resources to provide for it. All they got are a few fish sticks and a couple of loaves of Wonder Bread. Now Jesus, on the other hand, sees the crowd not with fear, not based on some utilitarian calculation. Jesus sees the crowd with compassion. Why, perhaps? Well, Jesus doesn't need the crowd's approval. Just before the whole John the Baptist episode, Jesus was back in his old stomping grounds in Nazareth where the crowds rejected him viewing him merely as Mary's son, the brother of some locals, Joseph, Simon, James, and Judas. And how did Jesus receive the crowd's rejection among his own friends and family? Do you remember? With a shrug. He says that prophets don't tend to fare well in their own hometowns. (laughs) 
Oh, well. And then he's off somewhere else. I mean, Jesus didn't go to his high school reunion seeking affirmation that he'd made it from his 10th grade homecoming date. So when Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them, it's not because he has any expectations that the transactional equation is going to come out in his favor. He heals. He offers food just for the sake of healing and offering food (laughs) because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't get anything out of this interaction with the crowd. See, and that's the difference between the kind of kingdom that Herod represents on the one hand and the reign of God that Jesus is busy announcing on the other. The way this world operates, there's always feels like there has to be a quid pro quo, right? No free lunches. Too many politicians do the things politicians do because there's some kind of payoff in the end, right? Financially or politically or both. Cut taxes, raise taxes. Change the healthcare system, don't change the healthcare system. Reduce Social Security benefits, don't touch Social Security. Whatever words come out of politicians' mouths, then we've been conditioned by our culture to ask, what is this person getting out of it? Right? Follow the money. Now, obviously, there are good politicians who genuinely feel like they're doing something good. But we're so used to people lining their own nests, it's, it's gotten hard not to be cynical. But, and the church isn't much better, right? That I means the church has this reputation among those who've made a decision to stay away. As word on the street is that the church is only concerned with bringing people in to shore up its own flagging ecclesial economy, right? But you see, folks are looking for people who follow Jesus to actually, you know, follow Jesus, to live the way he lived and to love those whom he loved just because it's the right thing to do. People are looking for those who follow Jesus to seek justice Not so that we can convince more people to join, but because we who serve a just God are only able any longer to see a world where justice prevails. People want those who follow Jesus to look out for the powerless, not so that we can make a name for ourselves among those who care about such things, but because we serve a God who in Jesus chose powerlessness as a way to be among us. People are longing for a church that embodies forgiveness, not so that we can wind up as an anecdote and chicken soup for the soul, but because we seek to be like the one who, when faced with our intransigence, decided to offer forgiveness to us. In the new reign over which Jesus presides, The sick are healed, the hungry are fed, the outcasts are welcomed, the forgotten are remembered, the sinners are forgiven for the simple reason that that's what God wants. 
That's the way God is. Now, maybe it doesn't make good sense business-wise to go to all that trouble for people who can't offer you anything in return, but that's God's idea of a good time. Lavish, extravagant, unimaginable. I heard a story on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR one time. The, the Reverend Al Sharpton, I'm sure many of you are aware, he, he told a story about how he learned if he was actually living out his convictions or if he was doing what he was doing just because he was good at it. He told about planning a march through an Italian neighborhood, Bensonhurst, in Brooklyn. It was protesting the shooting death of a 16-year-old young black man at the hands of a white mob. Just before the march in January of 1991, a man approached Reverend Al and stabbed him in the chest. Now, before the man, his name was Michael Ricciardi, was scheduled to be sentenced for attempted murder and aggravated assault, Sharpton's mom called him, and she asked, whatever happened to that boy that stabbed you? And he said, well, it's funny you should ask. He's, he's getting ready to be sentenced. And she said, um, are you going to forgive him? And he said, forgive him? Mama, he tried to kill me. Hmm, she said. What do you think Martin Luther King would have done? Exasperated, he said, I don't know, Mama. And she said, well, I was just asking. Reverend Al said that that just, it just stuck in his craw because he fancied himself a civil rights man, self-consciously modeled on his hero, Martin Luther King. And so he did some research and he found out that King had also been stabbed at a book signing in 1958 by a woman named Isola Kerr. And when asked about his calmness after being stabbed, King said, I think she needs help. I'm not angry at her. Now, when the knowledge of Dr. King's story finally dawned on him, and with that, story in his hand, Al Sharpton went to the judge to ask for leniency for Michael Ricciardi, the man who stabbed him in the chest. And the judge said that while Reverend Sharpton's gesture was noble, the man had committed a crime and he's going to have to pay the price. So Sharpton said he didn't think a whole lot more about it, figuring, I mean, you know, he'd done all he could do, until one day some years later, he received a letter, and it was from Michael Ricciardi. Sharpton said that when he opened it, he didn't figure it was going to be a thank you letter, <laughs> since he hadn't actually gotten the judge to lessen the sentence. But Michael Ricciardi wrote that he was grateful to Al Sharpton for appealing to the judge on his behalf. Moreover, he realized that though the judge had still sentenced him sternly, after Ricciardi had stabbed him, Sharpton, Sharpton didn't, he didn't have to do anything, right? 
But, he wrote, I just wanted to thank you for speaking up for me. Because nobody in my life has ever done that for me before. And you didn't have to do it at all. Thank you for forgiving me. In a world that's used to ulterior motives, where everybody wants to know what the angle is, we serve a God who's busy doing wild, extravagant, unthinkable things just because. And we come to that God and we say, Lord, the world's really out of whack right now. It needs to be fixed. People are hurting and, and hungry yelling and fighting with each other, and we just don't know what to do. Show us what to do. We're, I mean, we're not sure we can do it. I mean, we only have a little bit. A few fish, a couple of loaves, a little bit of money, church building. But you got to do something. Heal them, God. Fill, fill their aching bellies. Just do something. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have much, but you're not trying to win anything. You're only trying to do the right thing. You've got enough. You give them something to eat. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.